0: I mean, I think you've got three choices when something really negative in your life happens and you have to have the right support network around you to help you make the right decision, but ultimately it comes down to you. So I think you can either take what you've gotten and go back to where you were. Some people just revert into kind of like a computer. You go back to revisionary mode. You just go back to where you were and try and just replicate what happened, the person you were before that event happened. I think number two, candidly, you can use it as an excuse, and you can use it as a crutch to lean on, and say, "Well, that's why I got into things I shouldn't have," or you can use it as, as fuel, and you can use it to kind of make yourself better and improve, and find a way to get around it. Altitude, altitude.
1: Tower, departure status is ready. See you, runway
0: four left, one zero four zero, and five. Clear for takeoff. Seat tied. Altitude zero. Eyes. We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace.
1: Oh two. Yeah. D- the is still What's up? Hope everyone is doing well. We're back at it this week with my buddy Andrew McKenna. We flew several air shows together. He's an Air Force Heritage Flight Foundation pilot, which means he's flying a P-51 next to the F-22, the F-16, the F-35. He has quite the story from his upbringing to becoming very successful in the business world. I think you're gonna enjoy, listening to a little bit about his background, some of the things he overcame, and then we're gonna share a few stories in there, maybe one or two. So again, I think you'll really like it. Before we get rolling into it, the admin notes, as always, Thank you to my Patreon supporters. You guys keep the podcast going. If you're looking for additional content or looking to support the podcast, you can swing over to patreon.com backslash the Because that's too tough to spell like it is for me. You can go to theafterburnpodcast.com. You can find links to Patreon. You can find links to episodes that are up there on YouTube, as well as other flying videos and merch. If you're looking for some Afterburn Podcast merch, swing over to theafterburnpodcast.com and you can check all of that out over there. But Patreon supporters, they're gonna get access to some exclusive videos. I just did a breakdown of an air-to-air video that's up there that's exclusively for Flight Lead members and above, but it's up to you. You choose. Also, last but not least, thank you for everyone who takes the time that goes over to iTunes, that goes over to Spotify and drops a rating or review. It seems trivial, but it does make a difference. It helps the podcast grow. So if you had taken the three to six to nine seconds to do that, please consider, just go over there, drop a five-star review, leave a few words. That definitely helps the podcast out and lets the algorithm know, hey, maybe people like this and they'll show it to more people. So please consider doing that. With that being said, let's get into it with Andrew McKenna. This is the one thing uh, that no one ever sees the behind the scenes with all the technical pieces. But um, the good news is I record like in three different spots. So it looks like we just had another recording reset and start kicking again. So no, worries. no I'm, uh, I'm, I'm jealous, man. It'll that'll be, that'll be a fun day. Hopefully the weather holds out. You know, I'm over in Georgia, still the southeast. It seems like everything is uh, thunderstorms and rain showers, you know, this time of year. So hopefully the weather cooperates. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, so with that, let's talk a little bit about you. So will you give everyone kind of the 60 to 90 second Elevator pitch of who you are, and what you do, and then we'll jump back to kind of where it all began.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. Well, look, uh, I live in Arlington, Virginia. I do a lot of mergers and acquisitions work, and i Moonlight for the United States Air Force Heritage Flight Foundation, which is a huge honor for me to be a part of. My dad took me to air shows as a little kid, he was a mechanic in the air guard. It just never burned out, and I finally got my official license when I was 30 years old, but I soloed when I was 16. We just couldn't afford to pay the bills to between 16 and 30. So um, got into flying just, I think, like everyone else in Cessnas and Cubs and everything and just started working my way up. Got into a North American T-6 Texan, the mighty Texan, the terrible Texan. Very humbling to fly that airplane, and I put about 600 hours on that. And then I was able to acquire a P-51 Mustang in 2013. And then in 2017 was put on the heritage flight program. So this will be my fifth or sixth season as a civilian getting to fly with the U.S. Air Force. So huge honor, glad to be here.
1: There's a lot to unpack in that uh, because there's obviously a few years in between that. I would like to kind of peel back the onion and jump back to the beginning. So you said you soloed when you were 16. So obviously you had the, the aviation bug in you early.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my dad, my mom took flying lessons and never finished. My dad took flying lessons and never finished. And, and I think there was always a part of aviation where we would do family picnics at the Brandywine airport. And, you know, I would get to see Ed Shipley and Jim Beasley flying around and tearing up the skies in their, you know, T-6s and Mustangs. And they were kind of like local heroes to me. Some kids were into baseball. And for me, it was about going to air shows and, and watching the Warbirds. So it just never burned out.
1: Did you, like, what was kind of the first steps to getting you flying? And then you said you had to stop kind of after you you soloed there. Can you talk about that time period?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was really a tumultuous time for our family. My mom was incredibly sick. Um, She ended up uh, uh, committing suicide when I was in, uh, much later in life. And on several of the attempts, you know, my dad and I would bridge the difficulty in growing up with all of that through aviation. That became our way to communicate with one another. So, uh, you know, we would oftentimes go out to the airport and use that as a respite to talk about cool things and airplanes, uh, you know, not hiding the fact that mom was really sick, but just yeah. necessarily having something to, that was more positive uh, to rally around. So
1: so I, I can't even imagine being in those shoes, especially as a teenager dealing with those things. But I know people have to do that. Is there any advice or yeah, it was it going there and just like focusing on something different that kind of got you through because I think that qualifies as one of those, you know, type events that can put you down a path of no return, doing bad things or going down the wrong path, the proverbial fork in the road. But obviously you went a different path and are very successful overcoming a lot of difficulty in the teenage years, which again, formative years and when things don't go right it takes a lot to make sure that you don't veer off the course there. What, can you talk a little bit about that? And
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you've got three choices when something really negative in your life happens. And you have to have the right support network around you to help you make the right decision. But ultimately, it comes down to you. So uh, I think you can either take what you've gotten and go back to where you were. Some people just revert into kind of like a computer. You go back to revisionary mode. You just go back to where you were and try and just replicate what happened, the person you were before that event happened. I think number two, candidly, you can use it as an excuse and you can use it as a crutch to lean on and say, well, that's why I got into things I shouldn't have. Or you can use it as, as fuel and you can use it to kind of make yourself better and improve and find a way to get around it. And I think there are just thousands and thousands of examples of other people, A, that I think have been through worse, you know, I think every bad experience is relative in your life. But for me, I just used it as fuel. I wanted to find the passion and take the energy and the love that I had from my mom and my dad. And I was like, hey, I'm going to go fix this. I'm going to go do better. I'm not going to just accept the status quo. So, you know, that airplane that I rode in, the, the, the T-6, you know, after my mom made the attempt on her life and my dad took me to the Brandywine Airport. You know, I I got to meet Ed Shipley for the first time, right? And now I own that T-6 and it's called Pamela Marie, right? It's the world's most expensive T-6, right? (laughs) Because (laughs) instead of going to a graveyard, I I get to honor her through the way I wanted to. And when I found that airplane almost 15 years later, when Jimmy and Ed discovered it, we bought it and I restored it. And that was my therapy, right? That was my way of finding a way to get over it and deal with it and deal with it in the way I wanted to, not in the way like everyone's like, oh, well, you got to deal with a problem this way. So I think you have to unpack uh, for yourself kind of that negative circumstance and you got to make a conscious decision. Am I going down? Am I going back to where I was or am I going to try and solve the problem? And the one thing I've really learned over it, the most important thing you got to pay every bill that comes your way. You're going to pay it sooner rather than later. So hiding from it, you can run from it, you can bury it. But man, you're going to pay the bill. So you got to find your own way to pay it. And for me, it was through aviation and the love of my mom and the restoring of the T-6 that I wrote in when she was still alive and, and then just kind of putting that all together to tell you know my story. So anyway, sorry for the rant.
1: No, it's perfect. I mean, some salient points in there. And then the the beauty of that, right. Is obviously you took, you know, those tumultuous times you became successful. And then, you know, again, able to honor your, your mom in the way that best suits you. Right. Which through a passion of aviation is pretty incredible. I think that's, and for those listening, there, there's an article out there that I, I read. Um, yeah, you know, after knowing Andrew but I didn't know this, didn't know the story behind you and to me it was very powerful just reading that and learning a little bit more about you, right, aside that I didn't know. Yeah. And I think that people can find yeah, you know, cuz everyone everyone goes through something. There's always something that goes sideways in your life, but taking those points that you just laid out there, right? You got three choices as far as how you're going to handle it. I think is is important as you go out there and and face and do life. Yeah. So, with that 16 to 30, right? There was a little hiatus from aviation. Yeah. What was going on there? What was going on there? You
0: know, it was just it wasn't in the cards. It was hard, right? It was, you know, you know, like we couldn't afford it. There was a lot going on at home. Just trying to figure out just to finish high school was really challenging for me. Getting into college was difficult. Just everything was really hard and flying was more of like a luxury right yeah. it wasn't something that we could afford as a family and it wasn't something I had time to do or knew how to like I didn't have anybody there I had a you know it was just really difficult so I think uh college for me and where I went I went to Lynchburg College this small liberal arts school in Lynchburg Virginia and I got in there and finally got away from a little bit of the chaos and I just excelled. So every year that I was in school, I just got better and better and better. I had a coach there uh, named Steve Kedelka, who I played lacrosse for, who was very transformational for me in my life. I still owe him, you know, heaps and loads as they would say over in the UK, <laughs> like I just, he just did so much for me. You know, he took me from being a boy to a man and told me, Hey, this is how you need to conduct yourself. and I'll just never be able to repay it. But, uh, by the time I left, I had a real passion and said, Hey, what are the things that I said I was going to do that I haven't done? And so the, the flying bug was just always there. I mean, I thought about flying every day, Yeah, you know, airplane flew overhead. I was staring at it. I would go to the airport and watch. And, um, and then I think, uh, when I turned 30, it was just like, all right, I've got the time and I have the money now I've got to, I've got to get this done. It was kind of like a burning, you know, desire. Uh, to just get it done, do it.
1: <laughs> I love it. And then, I mean, I know a lot's happening, very busy life, but you start progressing with you know getting your pilot's license, instrument rating, and then quickly jumping into Warbirds and racking up time in Warbirds. Can you talk to me a little bit about the, the acquisition of the T6, restoring that, and then the process of getting the Mustang and, and what that was like?
0: Yeah. I mean, the flying was always there, right? So it was just like everyone else. It was a Cessna 172 or, you know, equivalent, and then into a turbo 182 for the instrument rating after the private. And I bought a Cessna 400, uh, is now the TTX. I think they just stopped making that, but I bought one of those and that was my first real airplane. That was right around the time that Ed and Jimmy discovered that the T-6 I rode in when I was nine years old was now up for sale. So that was right around 2008. And they called me and they were like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta come up here to Chester County and we got to do this deal. And it really is about Jim Beasley. It just shows what a, um, you know, he would never admit this, but he's a sweetheart and he's a great guy. And he really stepped up and Ed was there and Uh, he convinced me to buy it. I mean, I did no business owning a T-6. I don't have a mechanic. I don't know anything about warbirds. (laughs) I'm in my early, very early thirties, you know, this is 2008 and I'm like, what am I doing? And I realized that this was the way I could, you know, restore that airplane and get it back to its original luster when I rode in it and when Ed actually owned it. Uh, And that started to create this progression. It was difficult and hard and I had to learn how to fly it. And Then I wanted to get into aerobatics and I wanted to do it safely. And that was Jimmy and Ed and, you know, other, other guys like Dan Calderall and others who, who were like, Hey, you can do this. So I think the, that was kind of the progression from 2008 to 2013 uh, was just getting, being a solid warbird pilot in the T-6. And then I, you know, in 2012 or so I was shopping for a P-51, you know, I had the financial resources from, Working really hard to be able to swing it, and um, I was really excited about getting it, and it's kind of the next step, you know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think every airplane when it grows up wants to be a P fifty one. Right. <laughs> anyway, that was kind of the kind of the next the next step.
1: Obviously, having the resources to go out there and do that is one thing, right? Not a lot of people can find themselves in it, but the parallels I, I hear and draw from this is having a mission and an objective and going after it. Like these are long-term objectives and goals that you're marching towards that take multiple steps and multiple years, as well as lots of pieces of the puzzle all being put together at the right time and right place in order to make it happen. It's not just something that gets handed to you. Can, can you talk to a little bit about like what that drive is or like how you focus in and hone in on these objectives and kind of what pushes your daily pattern? Because again, I do think there's a parallel here for, success and no matter what field you're going after.
0: Yeah, I think you, you, have, to, you have to ask yourself what kind of life you wanna have and what you want out of it. You, know, you only get to go around this dial once, right? You get on the merry-go-round, you get to do a full 360 and then it's over. So I think if you, and I think at a young age, just watching all of the bad news and the trauma and the just, just so much, everything was just so difficult that everything else now feels slightly easier I'm like, oh, all I need to do is like put this deal together. And people are like, you can't do that. And I'm like, well, that's not harder than what I've already dealt with. So why can't I? So I I think just not accepting the status quo. I think people get too caught up in overthinking a lot of things and they make it harder than it needs to be. I think there's a lot of that. But I would say the number one thing is passion, you know, is really having a really deep passion and interest in the things you want to do. And the person that you want to be and i think if you take that passion and you focus it towards what you want you're you're going to get there you're going to get further than right. you think i would say that's that's in business and i think in my flying i mean i i would i'd be lying to you if i told you when i got the mustang i mean the reason i'm part of the reason i was like i want to be on the heritage flight like that yep. to me was the pinnacle and the pyramid at the very top that i wanted to go do um and I was like, "I'll do whatever it takes, you know, to the, you know, within reason, you know." I may think maybe things got a little weird. End, you know? <laughs> uh, it was like, "You, you never know what's going to happen." Hey, we better let this guy on the team before, you know, before he does something crazy, you know. Uh, you know, I was I was pretty fired up about it. I just I just to me it was a really big deal, and it still is. It still yeah. is. So, you know.
1: Well, at the end, I have to ask, what's next? You know, because I know there's something next brewing, but. I think this would be a good time to transition to where we first met. So, you know, 2017, I was the new F-16 demo pilot. For those who don't know, before the season starts, everyone gets together in Tucson, Arizona for the Air Force Heritage Flight Conference. And that's where the demo pilots and the heritage pilots get together. We fly a bunch of different formations together, you know, from P-51, F-16, F-22, F-86, mixed up. It's by far the best TDY in the military. But I would say it's a busy time. It's the busiest, like, four days of any TDY that I've ever been on. You were brand new that year. I was brand new that year. I'll say I didn't really, you know, like, no idea, right? Like, we met each other, and that was it. But fast forward a few months, and it's our first air show together, which is Sun and Fun. That's a little air show down in Florida. That's right. But, but the lead-up to this is I'm getting several emails about Lee Lauterbach, who was once a Heritage Flight. He was a founding member in the Heritage Flight Foundation, but retired once he was over the age of 65. Uh, Andrew is, is working to get Aunt, uh, Lee one more heritage flight for uh, Stallion 51's anniversary. So there's a lot of email traffic back and forth in Standard Air Force. Like there's gotta be a syllabus. You gotta get this guy requalified. How are you gonna get this guy requalified? So we hatched this plan together of rejoining down in the Avon Park airspace down in Florida. I'm gonna do it coming in from another air show. And we're going to get Lee recertified. And I think initially the pitch was just one flight and done. Somehow we managed to get like four flights out of that, (laughs) that one flight and done. But you know, this is, so I'm coming from Corpus Christi, Texas. I'm at 45,000 feet and you and Lee are holding down in the MOA. And I have to descend through all the airspace, which is kind of busy there in Florida, but from like 45,000 feet, sunny day, I catch the glint off your Mustang and we do the rejoin and go in there. And that was the beginning of like the first air show of of many but that was to me that's like one standout moments and we got a few that we we can talk about but that was that sun and fun was your first air show as a heritage pilot correct it,
0: it it is and just to memorialize that i've got a great uh great picture that you uh alitha that you and and i think baby rock sent over to me up on my <laughs> wall still today that was my very first heritage flight where we rejoined and well, I have a picture of our single, you know, after Lee did the one day thing. But yeah. Yeah. That was really special stuff. I mean, to honor Lee for all he's done for the program and being a founder and giving him his due that he, he deserves, you know, he's just coming off of doing all the production work for Top Gun 2. And, uh, you know, he's just an icon, um, in the, in the aviation space, especially with the Mustang, you know, he's like the Pope, you know, the P 51. Right. right. Uh, so well, yeah, you just never, uh, it, those first few weeks were, and those first few air shows were like candidly terrifying, right? Because you're like, I don't want to screw this up. I don't want to be the guy that makes a mistake. Right. Um, and uh, it was really comforting to know that you, you know, you have real fighter pilot experience. You know, you're a tactical wow. fighter pilot. And, you know, before you joined the Loops to Music crowd like the rest you're of right, us right, uh, right. for the last <laughs> two years. Uh, but, you know, doing that with Lee and you was is, 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 is awesome, for sure.
1: That- that was a standout memory, but also I think I'll let you tell the story from your perspective, and then I'll jump in here. Because it was the next year, this is the one that, like, there's video out there on Instagram. It looks like I'm having a seizure in the cockpit. I wish we had a GoPro on you. But doing the uh, the Belmont Stakes flyover, that was by far probably the most stressful flyover I think I've done. That might that might land in that category. I don't know for you.
0: Yeah, I, I would say that was the most complicated, messed up, but had the greatest outcome because no one knew the the dumpster fire that was going on in our cockpits, um, <laughs> right, while that right. was going on. But I'll set the table real quickly. We were doing the Quonset Rhode Island. I think it was Quonset Rhode Island air show. Yeah. And we decided to tack on and thank you U S air force for including a last minute addition to do the flyover, to start the Belmont horse race, which is the end of the the last of the triple crown, I think. Right. Um, so we get organized and we're in the most complicated airspace or some of the most complicated airspace in the country, right? Just, just North of JFK. And we hatch a plan over four days. And thanks to you rain and your PowerPoint skills, but convincing the air force, (laughs) we could do this. So it's an F 16 and F 35 with a P 51 in the lead. And we have three or four solid days to like brief up and get all the right counterparties, not that briefing it is necessarily hard, but getting all of the right jurisdictional authority signed off and the FAA and the A3 and COMAC and everybody to give the, you know, this good housekeeping seal of approval. So anyway, everything goes great until we get to the hold. And uh, my memory is, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but three days of planning, an F-16 and an F-35 and a P-51 came down to hand signals in the cockpit so we couldn't communicate um we were two and a half miles or three four miles north of the launch point we didn't know when i didn't know when to come off the hole then i'm leading <laughs> and we ended up getting down to hand signals on what how fast i should fly to maintain the timing the tot so it was a complete mess that's my record
1: well and the and these are all make believe hand signals, by the way, too. Like Correct. it was just like pulled back a little bit, <laughs> just a little bit. Like no, push it up just a little bit. Meanwhile, like Dojo's in the F thirty five, like the most advanced modern fighter that man can make, just hanging out there, nope, with not no a comms, peep. nothing, <laughs> N- nothing. Yeah. The the piece of that too is that made it really difficult, from what I remember, is the fact we were holding so far north of the Belmont stakes before we could, you know, start our run in because the airspace was so congested because normally we want to hold like eight ish miles away and then you can still make a correction, right. If you need to, but I think we were like 25 or 30 miles out, like before like to hold, to start the push and the run in. So like once we went, which again, we didn't know when we could go because we couldn't talk to anyone. It was just going on hope and a prayer. Um, like the ship sailed. Yeah, not only could That's we it. not
0: talk to anyone, but we couldn't talk to one another is my recollection. Right. And then you yeah. but you had everything loaded up on your FMS and you were able to know what our TOT was. So you were able basically to communicate to me like we need to go faster and slower depending on you know because we were so far out. You're right.
1: And again, just uh yeah, you know, with make believe, just just give me a little bit <laughs> like push it up a lot. lot like. I'll have to, as part of this episode, I'm going to have to reshare that video because it's quite comical that, again, we come down to, you know, the most advanced fighter in the world, an F-16, and then an F-35, I'll let you decide, and a Mustang with, you know, advanced avionics, and none of us can talk to, can't talk to the ground party, can't talk to one another, although we did wrap that one up pretty well, I do remember cruising back low level along the coast, that was pretty Yeah, I think we
0: shacked the timing, too, I think that's the key, right, everyone was like, you were spot on, and You know, you don't want to be early for the national anthem, you know, and you don't want to be super late. You want to be like right on it. And I think we shacked it. And then, uh, yeah, heading back to Quonset. I mean, that's not to get into experiences, but to have an F-35 and an F-16 on your wing and you're, you're a civilian landscaper's kid, right. And you're in a P-51 and I was, it was a beautiful, I recall, it was just absolutely beautiful as we were rolling back out of the airspace. And I'm like, well, why don't we just go down to. 200 feet and give everyone on the beach a little, how you doing? Yeah. Hello. And fistful of America, you know, Freedom. And, uh, we just cruised all the way down. I don't, we weren't down low for, you know, the whole trip, but I think we went down to 200 feet out over the water. And, and I think a lot of people were like, Whoa, that is cool. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, it's cool about that formation too. There is good video cause they had like the news helicopter that had really good high def video of us running in. Um, But that, to me, that really speaks to heritage, right? Like from the beginning to what we have now, World War II to the most advanced fighter, the F-35, and the fact that we can go out there and do that formation all flying together, right? Because F-16 definitely doesn't like going slow. The Mustang go pretty quick, right? But again, it's different. And we're doing all that, which I think we kind of just, we skimmed the surface on this fact that JFK is right there. I think we're like a mile from the approach in whatever that north-south runway is. So there's a lot of things that are going on here. Um, But it was, that was a pretty America day, if you ask me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I remember having a cocktail that night with you guys and thinking, you know, this is, this is all right. You know, I can, I can get (laughs) used to this, you know, and I think shuttling your crew uh, around uh, that was a, that was a really fun weekend. Yeah, that was a, that was a really fun weekend. One, thanks to you too, Rain. I mean, look, you helped rewrite the the rules for the first time right in in, in 20 years of the uh, history of the heritage program you help add new procedures and make it even even more special than it was before you got on the team so i, I mean no no kidding around you know talk about guys leaving things better than they found them that's uh really epitomizes you and uh, what you've done for the program when you were on it i mean you were high impact player team player i mean everyone knew you were always there and solid and then not only that you just kind of went above and beyond to go through the, sorry to be direct, but the ass pain of dealing with all of the various pieces <laughs> right. to try and convince the air force and heritage and the FAA to add these new, uh, more dynamic maneuvers to, to, to honor the history of these aircraft. So it's no kidding around. Thanks for, thanks for you doing that.
1: Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. It, it was fun to do. I'm glad I got to fly it a couple times, uh, which was, we had a, Two passes, right? That got added in, which is pretty cool. Um, I think there was a lot of hesitation, especially at Tucson with the airspace doing the turnaround. I do remember doing that uh, turnaround in front of the crowd in the F-86, which I think, like, Steve took us up to, like, 14,000 feet, like, top of the TFR, do this whiffer deal. Um, But the the Heritage flight, by far, to me, was the best part of doing that demo. Like, there's, like, hands down. Because I will say, you know, you got a Mustang, your Mustang pilot, which is the most badass thing, because like for me, that's the plane that I watched as a kid growing up. That you, you know that that you know that motor, you know that noise. But my first flight, it was with Dan. He was leading it, um, and you would think that an F sixteen wearing you know double ear pro, the helmet, in a cockpit that's a jet, you know that you're not going to hear anything. But no kidding, on the wing of the Mustang you can hear that Merlin motor in the cockpit of a Viper. Yeah. Which to me is just like, so the, the chills like it, right now, it brings it back too. like, that's pretty incredible.
0: Yeah. It's uh that Merlin magic never gets old, you know, and you have that, you have that uh, Rolls Royce Merlin rolling around. I, I'm, I'm reminded when you and I were in Atlanta doing the Atlanta motor speedway and we're like, that it was like 2000 foot ceiling <laughs> over and we were like right on the line. Like, are we doing this? Are we not doing this? Yeah. And I'd launch and like, as soon as you join up with me, you're like, Hey, your one of your panels is coming off. And I'm like, that's right. What (laughs) panel, you know, it ended up being, I can show your audience if those are watching, but you know, there's a little battery panel, but you know, the wing locker panels are probably the scariest and that's what you don't want to come off. And, uh, so anyway.
1: Yeah, so here's what I learned in that. I mean, I always know words matter, um, but this is one of those things. Like, when we landed, you're like, hey, dude, I was getting ready to get out of the plane. You know, like, that's, like, the first spring, like, depending on what panel that is, I was like, oh, well, in my mind, I'm like, that's just an open door on a jet that's going to get ripped off. You know, like, well, if you tell me I open, I'm like, well, not my problem. Yeah. Um, but, you know, different planes have different things, different characteristics you're concerned about. But I do remember that. And then afterwards, like, yeah, you're like, hey, uh, this is what this panel is. Not a big deal. These panels, big deal. Yeah. Um, so there's some. Have you had any like motor issues? I mean, again, come from a single engine world. I was always thinking like this thing's gonna quit. This thing's gonna quit. I'm always I'm always looking for the next piece of concrete or where I can put the plane down. Have you had any motor issues or anything kind of crazy? Yeah. I mean, happen? I've
0: I've had a couple things that have been a little touch and go. Uh, I've had a, a T6 engine that had a glaze cylinder on the R1340. You know, nine cylinder engine, and we yeah. replaced uh, my old engine with a new one and. That was a little sporty had a real rumble and you know i've had a couple little episodes in the mustang where the engine's just not running right and chip light came on and then a procedure where my engine was actually making metal uh, which is really bad and had to kind of deal with that kind of funny now to talk about but not funny at the (laughs) time just at this past heritage flight i had a coolant leak issue that we thought we had resolved and just to talk to you about communication we had a uh, we had a four ship so we had two p-51s we had a f-22 and we had an f-16 in a in a four ship out at heritage and we had all you know the radios were terrible we're in the four ship and and all i heard was mustang you're leaking coolant right so immediately words matter i am like i'm out of here you know i break out and it ended up being a, a we absolutely followed the right procedure but just to your point you have to be really careful about what you say it would have been better if they were like ba your coolant door you're leaking coolant not you know you're leaking coolant you know so it was uh one of those things but the the words you use especially on a com and a dissimilar formation with people who have military background and civilian and and by the way that's why we do heritage right we find out where those gaps are we find out what language we're all speaking and we make sure we're consistent because it's those really little things that'll come up and come up and grab you. But no, I've been really fortunate for the most part. Uh, I haven't had it bail out of an airplane or anything. So that's that's good. But yeah, we've had a couple little engine issues here and there. And uh, you just got to be a little cagey around these old airplanes. You got to respect them and you got to be really conscientious around them. And I think if you do that and you listen to them, uh, they yeah. talk to you. You know, that's what Lee Louderback always yeah. says. and uh, they talk to you, you know, if you see a little leak somewhere, it's, it's talking to you, you know, so just pay attention.
1: That's what, if you see an F-16 that doesn't have uh, oil and all the stuff underneath it, you know, something's wrong, Yeah, but uh, <laughs> it's like, it, it's talking to you already. Yeah. The, and that's the thing too, is, you know, so heritage flight, that's that four days, right? Where you can, you can dial everyone in, knock off the rust from the winter of no one, no one flying together but really just rehacking what it is because the commonality in speaking the same language, while you think it would be assumed is not always the case. And even guys who've been in the program for 20 years or did demo for, you know, two or three years, there's always something that's kind of like a refresh or something that can happen. And that's like one of those things that I think can get overlooked a good bit. And that's why having those practices are so essential because the dissimilarity between the aircraft, like for example, like the F-16 demo is finishing the last pass at 620 knots, doing 9Gs, going to rejoin with the Mustang, or God forbid, an A1 Sky Raider that's doing 120 knots in the sky. Uh, it's just, it's so it's so vastly different that speaking that same language is so important. Otherwise, bad things can happen. And when when all this fails, you just make up your own language like we that's did. That's right. You know, just you know, push it up. Yeah, you know, just push it up a little bit, put, pull it back a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I guess I was with Tuna uh oh, this was my second season when he had his engine failure in the P47 you know again like that's just one of those things that I think I told him like, hey you're trailing smoke he's like yep I know you know like it was already it was already go time but again a lot can go wrong real quick so having the training is important so on that note what do you do like how how often do you try to get in the Mustang and fly? Do you do any recurrent training or anything like that? Yeah,
0: no, that's a great point. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, uh, try and get in the Mustang anywhere right after annual in, in January, February timeframe. So try and get a couple reps in with Jimmy. I have the convenience of being relatively close to Jimmy. So we'll try and do a yeah. couple of Formation Acro P-51 flights uh, before we actually push out to fly our Mustangs all the way from the East Coast all the way out to Tucson. So by the time I get out to Tucson, you know, it's six, seven hours of seat time and, uh, you know, you're pretty, you're not that that's a, you know, qual, but I've taken off and done six or seven landings. I've done formation aerobatics a couple weeks before I'm, I'm, I'm getting into the zone. Uh, the other thing is I go down to stallion 51 every year and I do an hour with Lee or one of his teammates. And, uh, it's not a friendly, Lee's a friend, but it's, he's not my friend when I'm there to work. Right. Right. So we're doing aborted takeoffs. We're doing buffet tracking. We're falling out of loops. We're going through a generator failure, a boost pump failure. We're getting into the real technical Gucci stuff on the Mustang. You know, like an example, like when are you going to know you have a hydraulic failure in a Mustang? Well, you're probably not going to be staring at the hydraulic pressure gauge the whole time you're flying it. That's just not a practical kind of, and the gauge in the airplane is in different places. And but you're probably going to get into the overhead to do the overhead break in the P-51, and you're going to go grab the flap handle to go flaps 20 to start to slow, the, slow that thing down. And the, ha- the flap handle is just going to, like, fall. Like, as soon as you touch it, there's no pressure from the hydro, and it's just going to okay. fall. Well, now you're thinking immediately, okay, now I'm on the gauge. What am I doing? So at that point, you're thinking, all right, do I have a long runway? Because I now need to do a no-flap landing. I know my gear should free fall pretty readily. Um, And now I'm thinking I need, you know, more, way more than 5,000 feet. That would be absolute min, And you'd probably still go off the end. Um, No kidding. But um, you'd want to look for 7,000 feet. So immediately I'm thinking I need concrete. So, but yeah, we, I usually um, do that with Lee and then you do heritage. And then after heritage conference is over in February, now you're getting into season. Right. So every week you have to be go out to the airport, treat it like a demo, open up the aerobotics box at Warrington, you know, go get an hour in and get get silly. I mean, you're you're really doing a disservice to flying with the ACC demo teams, because I don't know, Rain, what were you doing?
1: You doing like four
0: or five practices
1: a week in season? Yeah, it it depends. Right. Like when the team's traveling again, my sole job as a demo pilot was doing that. The, The piece that I think uh, well, people that know or they probably figure it out, right? You obviously have another job that pays the bills, right? right? And you're paying for your Mustang. So, you know, it's it's an additional duty to go out there and do that and be away from your family, be away from your business, doing all those things every single weekend. But, yeah, I'd say, you know, on average... Yeah, Rain, it's really it was, hard
0: to, like, get up at 5 in the morning away from your screaming kids and go fly a P-51 by yourself for an hour. It's really torture yeah. during the... Yeah, uh, but
1: you got to... You got to pay the bills when you get home, though. Yeah,
0: that's that's a whole nother. I don't even want to talk about that right now. Yeah, it's like depressing.
1: Yeah, I might as well have right. bought I mean, like
0: Pete's dragon. I mean, these things, these things don't run on like hopes and dreams, you know. Like you right. know, the saying is with a Mustang,
1: they're really easy to fix. You just throw your checkbook at them. So <laughs> I I cannot even imagine. You know, it's like that was a nice piece of about flying an F sixteen. You know, when the motor coughed and threw molten metal out the back, you just kind of, oh, dang, that stinks. Can I get into the spare? <laughs> you know, like, it's a uh, different problem sets, you know? It's just different problem sets.
0: Yeah, you know, it is, but it's, I'll tell you, it's worth it. And in a lot of ways, I think the doors that aviation opens and the relationships, like, look at us. You know, we've been, uh, I've, I've gotten to meet new friends and learn stuff. And candidly, like, that's, like, the best part. You know, it used to be when I got onto the, it was all about the airplane. It was like, I just want to focus on the plane and how cool the F-16 is. And and then after three or four years, you realize it's really about the high quality of the people that you get to be around. And no offense to, like, the whole air show community. I think it's great. but um, And I think there's a, amazing people are in it. But for me, the real gas is being around the the maintenance officer and the avionics guy and you and, like, being around that ecosystem for a 72-hour period. I mean, that's just, like really a lot of fun.
1: So, yeah, I, you know, I think what's unique too, cause I would say, I said the hair like heritage is by far the most fun aspect of being a demo pilot and flying. The best part of my job though, was at least for the Viper. And I think the A-10 does it this way. Well, all the teams, they have a set maintenance team, right? But the Viper and the A-10 have their own jets. So we were our own little family, but like working with those guys day in and day out. And while I'll say, you know, like there was one time that I had trashed all three motors of all three jets and they were pulling them on the weekend. And while I could go out there and they like, let me turn a wrench and like pat me on the back saying like, good job. Like my job was like to buy pizza. Yeah. Uh, yeah. End of the day. It was, that was a unique experience and by far the best, just being around the guys and being, being around the team making things happen that you don't get, like you just don't get that exposure experience. And I think you're right. It's like this aviation community opens up, a network to people if you embrace it and having that network and, you know, getting to meet new people from different backgrounds and different walks of life is, is pretty cool and unique.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, that's one of the things everyone's like, well, why do you go to Oshkosh every year? You know, is it just a fly heritage? And I'm like, no way. I mean, the ecosystem of Oshkosh is the most, it's, it's the most democratization of aviation in the world. You can have right. the F-35 pilot next to a guy who just built his own carbon cup next to a volunteer who works for EAA or volunteers every year. And everyone is an equal because they're all part yeah. of the ecosystem of aviation at Oshkosh for that entire week. And it, you'll, um, you'll be sitting at a picnic table that's, you know, 90 feet long and you're having a hot dog or ice cream and you're like, Hey, what do you do? It's like, Oh, we just brought a... Flew a steerman up from like you have a steerman and you're like oh what do you do you're like oh I fly with the Mustang but like it, there's there's just all this mutual respect and um, I think that's what makes aviation especially Oshkosh that time of year kind of like my favorite cool thing airplane thing to do. When did you start going to Oshkosh? Yeah, I went in 2007 was the first time that I went. That's actually where I met Max Moga, General Moga now okay. the Commandant of Cadets yeah. at the at the Academy today. So I got to meet Max there, who was the first demo pilot for the F-22, and that was the first year I went, and then took a couple years off and started going back in 2000, I would say like 2013 and 14, I started going pretty much every year that I've been, taking a couple years off here and there.
1: I remember him bringing the Raptor online, the demo, you know, and now they're getting ready to start retiring F-35s. I think it's 23 next year in the NDA, you might. Oh yeah, the 22, yeah. Yeah, and uh, which, I mean, those things haven't been upgraded since, I think, 2011. So it'd be pretty pricey to upgrade those ones that are coming out of the schoolhouse. But it's wild to me that now they're, those F 22s are rolling, they rolled off the line in the early 2000s. They're going to the Boneyard, and the Mighty Hog is. You just can't get rid of it. It's a booger you can't flick.
0: No, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, I just think of what's going on in Ukraine right now and, like, all the A-10 pilots just drooling <laughs> on that road. You know, they're like, oh, just let me – just give me an hour, you know.
1: that's. I saw Satan send out – you know, he sent out a text, and it was, you know, just a string. You know I mean? It was like it, it was their dream, you know, to go out there and just waylace. But that uh, that MiG-29 that got shot down over uh, – kiev got shut down from belarus which i didn't know that till i did the, i talked to paco about it but it's like a 150 nautical mile sam shot which the old a10 is just not gonna not gonna hang out too long no i don't think <laughs>
0: no that's that's legit that's a that's a long stick right there
1: yeah that's gonna hurt it's gonna leave a mark you're gonna get uh, the martin baker tie or whoever and yeah. it makes their ejection seat not, not what you want not where you want to be in life no but it certainly yeah. is yeah,
0: that's for sure
1: <laughs> what is the best part of heritage flight for you? Cause that's pretty, I mean, it's a pretty busy schedule for you, but are you still enjoying going out there and doing the shows? You know, I for, am, free, I, I,
0: I kind of, I kind of like, um, you know, I bitch a little bit, you know, in the, uh, until I get my plane back and getting out there and it's just, you know, family work obligations. Right. You're always kind of running around paying bills, right. For the plane. Yeah. But I would say it's, it's absolutely in that practice day or, you know, in the briefing and, and getting ready to go and the anticipation of wanting to do it right. So, yeah, I, I would say I'm really still enjoying it. I think it's been, it's certainly been more rewarding. And I always just, you know, if the weather's good and the plane's running good, it's just, the it's it's a great way to spend a weekend. I mean, there's no way around it. It's just, it's it's incredible. So absolutely enjoying it, you know, heading into season six now. I guess this will be my sixth yeah. year on the program. But that's, that's it. I I would say the favorite part, candidly, is doing it right. You know, being really safe. Of course, that's, that's always number one, but getting the reaction from people on the ground who have A, either never seen it or someone who really appreciates it. Maybe they were a wrench turner in the air force or, um, you get to go over and visit with them after the, after the performance or before, uh, that's, that's, that's definitely my favorite part of it right now that and taking my yeah. boys out there you know my three boys are yeah. like uh obsessed now with
1: uh are they eating airplanes. it they eating it up what's that they they eat it up i assume yeah you know
0: this was uh, it's stewart the last show of the season last year i took them to stewart florida and they just nice. man they did a first class job down there uh, you know it's a yep. it's a beach show it's florida it's late in the season they really did it right down there and i got to take my three boys down there and that was that was cool a, they had a bounce house there too. So that was a close kind of, might be a little competition. Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> it's a Mustang or a bounce house. You yeah. know? These, these are the things, that's the the funny part. I do, again, you know, through our time, I really enjoyed us being together flying. It, it We had some really great times, but I do have some really good, uh, many fond memories, but I need to share these photos too, because you were incredibly gracious to my son, Jack, which, you came down to Shawl, I think, I forget, I don't know if it was like for Loco to Sir, I think we were just kind of knocking the rust off. I know you were bringing the Mustang up from Florida, um, but stopped at Shawl, or you had to stay at the airport right next door, which is like three miles away, because Shawl doesn't have Avgas, but we just did several Heritage flight iterations. That's what we were doing. We were practicing the new routine. That's right. So we, we pitched it, we were practicing it before we went out and did it at Heritage, but it was cool, because... I got some cool photos of Jack sitting on the stairs of the FBO. One, well, one, you put him up in the cockpit of the Mustang, which he loved. But then two, it's a cool one of you taxiing out and he's giving me a big thumbs up. But uh man yeah, I got a copy of that. I assume.
0: Yeah, that was awesome. Dude, yeah, I remember okay. that. Yeah, he was wearing a red F-22 demo shirt. I yep. even remember that. Yeah. You got a good memory. Yeah.
1: You know Manny from the, the Raptor demo team, like put him in the weapons bay and he had like a five minute tour of the Raptor Weapons Bay, which I was like, you know, kid, like you're probably <laughs> the youngest and only kid to ever get a tour of the F-22, you know, weapons Bay, you know, this up close and personal. And then, it, you know, then you put them in the Mustang and man, yeah, it's some, it's some really cool memories. Yeah. It's cool to expose the kids. To this hopefully, hopefully it sticks, but by the time they're all old enough, it'll all be robots and exactly dr- drones. Yeah.
0: We got to, you never, well, that's the cool part, right? You never know that's why you need to be on in that environment. I mean, that's our job as part of heritage, right. Is to inspire the next generation and you know, the little girl or the little boy that runs around and says, Hey, this is really cool. And they get to meet you, the F 16 demo pilot, or they get to see someone that's like them, you know, uh, like rebel, who's the new F 16 pilot now. And they yeah. see her and they're like, wow, I can go do that too. And that's, um, that's the next generation. And that's, that's, that's why we're here. You know, we haven't had a, we haven't had an opposition aircraft drop a bomb since, uh, since the Korean War. You know, we've had air superiority since, since uh, right around the Korean War. 1954, I think, was the last year, if uh, that's right. right. And we need to keep it that way. And the only way we're going to keep it that way is having the best equipment and the best people, period. And uh, I know General Kelly, our, my, my boss, I guess, you know, when I'm on this side of the boss bosses, bosses, you know, yeah. he's, he's way up the food <laughs> chain. Um, but, you know, we, we've got to do it right and make sure we got the right people. In place.
1: That's the thing. It's, it is It is a thread that we're talking through a couple different episodes. Billy Flynn, he's going to be on here shortly as well. But General Kelly kind of touched on the interoperability piece. Significantly, we actually recorded that one pre-Ukraine. He was quite candid about leading up to it, which is interesting. But that's one of the things, you know, we kind of joked about like the A-10s going in and just having a field day with the Russian armor and tanks that were lined up. But the next fight, a near-peer fight, is a much different fight than when people are used to this uncontested air that we've operated in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria for the most part, right? There's been Russians, and Assad does have some stuff. But, yeah, getting inspiring the next generation to go out there and want to do this because that is a problem, getting people who want to do it. Although, I'll say, I think you and I signed uh, literally signed the back of iPhones at our first Sun and Fun, which I was like, you know we're devaluing this, but... They didn't care, but I'm sure those people, they want to be pilots now. That's right. But yeah, inspiring that yeah that next generation, I think, is, is really important, getting the exposure out there, which is what you're doing with the Heritage flight and the demo teams every weekend from March until November, which is, it's pretty incredible that the Air Force one lets this happen. And then two, there are people who are willing to come together like you to dedicate, you know, allocate your time and resources to make it so awesome.
0: Yeah. I mean that's that's the best part. I mean this is this program is incredibly special, but it speaks to the professionalism of not only the ACC and 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 having the confidence, but also the civilian members like me that get to be a small part of it, right? So we have a duty of care, right? To 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 maintain the standards. So everyone's like, well, why are you practice? Why are you doing this? I'm like, well, I have to. You know, I mean, you know, it's not fair to just show up and be like, well, I haven't touched the Mustang in three weeks, and now I'm going to go fly next to an F-16 and F-22 at 200 feet over couple hundred thousand people like no i don't think that's going to work so you really have a responsibility and you either do it right or you don't do it at all right and uh i think um yeah that's 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 a key part of it
1: for sure so i'm trying to do math i'll do math in public but are there now 11 heritage pilots so
0: no there's uh there's just 10 of us so doc uh, winners and steve hinton jr fastest man alive in a single engine piston making me look good right he gotten he got, you know i'm a member of a club i'd never get into now you know it's great for me i'm like yeah we want steve oh yeah that sounds great bringing boy wonder over here mr right flies with hollywood and everything just like his dad of course you know right you know i'm joking no, they're two of the greatest guys on the planet but yeah doc winters um it, you know, was pretty pretty I think he would say it if he was here next to me, but he uh, he owns Happy Jack's Go Buggy, just an absolutely beautiful P fifty one, and Steve Hinton Jr., who a lot of people know, has won Reno, uh, I don't know five or six times, and I think is the fastest man alive in a single engine piston. That's a guy you need to interview. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. A-
1: the, that no, and this was so Steve, you know, senior. We talked about the Super Bowl flyover. I had him on, and Nike can't kind of talk like the the aspects of doing the flyover, but not Steve's background, because I I had jokes like Steve's forgotten more about aviation than I'll ever know about aviation. I mean that guy from the beginning has just been just been doing it. He's got some he's got some sporty stories. And then doing the flyover of the Super Bowl with him, that was probably the most stressful flyover I've ever done. Yours would probably be second for the Super Bowl one. I had so many people like watching. I was like If we don't hit this TOT, like I'm just going to turn to the turn west out into the sunset and punch like I'm not going home. This is not worth it. You know, I'm just gonna get ridiculed to the end of time because doing those flyovers with dissimilar formations, which we kind of hit on. That is by far the toughest flyover or the toughest thing to do in heritage flight. Hands down, at least for me, I'm simple minded.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I've done so many at Arlington National Cemetery, and somehow it's just always lucked out for me. I've the, all the all the ones I've led, I've I've always just been really close or right on, not always perfect, but pretty damn close. And uh, they are stressful for sure.
1: The one we did at Oshkosh, for I think it was like a country music. I forget who the musician was. Big name, I think. Oh yeah, it was he was doing the Bentley. concert. Yeah. So yeah. and the, we rejoined over the lake. You know, it's really busy they stop we nailed the timing and then my safetyo who was you know we had two we had me uh you Stuart milson and then another f 16 and I won't mention his name no didn't we, I mean didn't just, I give him
0: the nickname snuggles for some activity he performed the next day under the wing of my Mustang yeah. so yeah.
1: yeah he he had a he had a great time you <laughs> yeah, know it was great. it was a great Tdy for him which you know En enjoy reap the benefits. He worked hard, so there we go. But it was the uh it was the flyover, which I was like, hey man, you're gonna be near Mustang, you know, just be careful. They don't have ejection seats. The standard spiel I give every you know safety observer that's ever gonna be near a Mustang. He's on my wing, right? Me, you, and Stuart are in the perfect formation, and then he is like lying abreast at a mile because he's so afraid of you on the other side of my wing there that like, as we do this flyover that just nailed the time, it looked like he was like the blue angel, like photo. Yeah. That's just way far in trail, but yeah, he did. He did appreciate the shade that your Mustang provided the next day for sure.
0: Yeah. He was, um, (laughs) he was special people. We'll just leave it at that. I think, yeah. I think think they say in the South, I think the term they use is bless his heart,
1: bless his heart. Yeah. 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 He's doing great things these days though. So that's, you know, That's good. He was a young, young wingman at the time. Yeah. Now he's just out there, out there killing it. You know, there was, there was some memories that were made. Yeah, That's great.
0: <laughs> yeah. It was, it's interesting for sure.
1: <laughs> oh man. Well, Andrew, as we kind of wrap up here, you know, I always like to ask people, you know, if you saw, if you bumped into like 15, 16 year old Andrew on the street, is there any advice you would, you'd would give him, tell him to do something different? You know,
0: I, uh, I would, I would tell you, um, uh, candidly the I tell the younger Andrew don't don't sweat the small stuff you know there's a there's a really good Texas saying uh that a good friend of mine gave to me he's not from Texas he's here from Arkansas but he said hey McKenna don't overcook it you know like sometimes in life you can overcook things you know I don't need to drink it as hot as you're serving it that's a kind of another way of saying it and I wish I I had followed more of that advice uh younger in my in my days but you know, it's hard to look back and have a whole lot of regrets because then you don't learn if you don't make mistakes. So I say that's the other kind of big thing is don't be afraid to make mistakes. Just, you know, in this day and age, you want to make sure you don't make a fatal mistake, right? Either in an airplane yeah. or, you know, a careless comment or anything like that. So, um, you know, be conscientious around that stuff, but no, just uh, push it up. You know, you only get to go around this dial once, as I mentioned earlier, you know, and, uh, don't, 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 don't take no for an answer
1: yeah andrew i really appreciate it, man It was good catching up thanks for taking the time and i uh, look forward to next time we can go flying together that's what we need to yeah do. that
0: is what we need to do we need to get you into the uh into pamela murray and the t6 i you know we've been talking about yeah, that we go. need to stop talking let's go do you yeah, know make, make yeah, it make it happen
1: good. hope you have a uh, safe flight go tear it up
0: yeah we're going to tear it up we'll uh save a little for you don't yeah. worry for yeah. your yeah. listeners Cheers. hey i really appreciate what you do with the, the afterburn podcast it's great to be on i hope uh hope it didn't bore your your clientele and your your listeners too much. I'm looking forward to listening to it as well so I can hear how bad I am on, on radio.
1: <laughs> I always say this. You know, the uh, I appreciate you taking the time. I, people are going to love it. But the worst part of this is I have to go listen to it and edit it, and I hate listening to my voice. So if you want to like really just like grind the gears to start a podcast and edit yourself when you hate your voice. So.
0: Sound good. I think that's going to be me that hears it for the first time. It's like, oh, what am I doing? <laughs> this is so bad. Yeah. So
1: no, I enjoyed it. Thanks, awesome. Andrew, man. I really appreciate it.
0: Hey rain. You're the best man. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate cool it. Stuff. All right. Later.
1: Later.